And welcome to PodPod. I'm Rihanna Dillon and I'm your host. This week we are talking to Imriel Morgan from Content is Queen. Now, Content is Queen is something that we do ask Imriel to define because I feel like I know it as a production company. Other people will know it as a marketing and PR agency. Essentially, it's a bit of everything. Content is Queen is an incredible company. And we also wanted to talk to Imriel about the International Women's Podcast Festival, which some of you might know was due to be put on this year, but was cancelled due to funding. So we have an incredibly open, frank, honest conversation with Imriel. It's truly excellent. Thanks to kind of how brave she is about talking about past failures and also successes. But before we get to Imriel, I'm delighted to be joined, as usual, by my co-hosts, Adam Shepard and Reem Makari. Hi, guys. Hello. 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 Busy week for you, Reem. What's been going on? <laughs> well, I attended the Radio Academy Festival last week, which was a full day event from 8 in the morning till 5 p.m., full of everyone from the audio industry, radio, podcasting. And it was really, really fun, a really good networking opportunity. But there was also really interesting sessions about how to reach young listeners and how to make your content more diverse. In the opening remarks, the new managing director from the Radio Academy Aradna Tayal Leach gave a speech and she was talking about kind of the next steps for the Radio Academy in its 41st year and how it's going to be prioritizing development of people, of younger people entering the industry and providing more tools like training skills, more opportunities to network, and also really trying to diversify the industry. And she said that they believe in equity and that they value people's differences and diversity, which was a big theme in this week's episode. So I, I thought it was very important and a very great way to start the event. It is a brilliant way to start the event, but as we've seen, or as we are going to hear about in this interview with Imriel, there's a lot of, okay, we'll put your money where your mouth is. So how much do you think that the Radio Academy was doing just that? This is the first step where they've kind of recognised that there isn't enough diversity and that they're planning to do something about it. And they've set out some ways that they're going to do it, like providing the training skills and networking. I think now it's going to be seeing if they follow through and how they're going to follow through. Some of the sessions during the Radio Academy Festival did highlight this. So I think that was a good step in that direction. But it's true. It is about putting in the actual effort and actually following through on action. So I guess it's just seeing how much they stay true to their word. Yeah, it's a waiting game for sure, which is a shame. But Adam, what about you? What's been going on for you in the world of podcasting the last week or so? Well, we've been buried in preparations for the British Podcast Awards, which are coming up very soon indeed. Uh, So we've been getting together all of the final bits for that. And it's shaping up to be a very exciting evening indeed. We are going to go into all of this next week in more detail, but from all these preparations you've been doing, what are you particularly looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the hosts on stage. We've got Zoe Lyons and Stephen Bailey, who we will be interviewing on the podcast next week. They are going to be hosting the evening in their trademark, hilarious and engaging way. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that. But more than anything else, I'm just looking forward to getting to see and chat to and network with all of the shortlisted podcasters and various movers and shakers from across the industry, which for me is always the highlight of any ceremony or event like the British Podcast Awards. I'll see you guys on the dance floor. (laughs) Right, let's get into our chat with Imriel. Here she is talking to me and Reem. Imriel Morgan, welcome to PodPod. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, in our introduction, we were sort of talking about content is queen and talking about how we kind of perceive it and we all sort of had slightly different perceptions interesting yeah so perhaps you could sort of like delineate what content is queen does how what your primary focuses are that is a good question Uh, (laughs) i would love to know what you all thought it was though too um but 
I guess at its core, Content is Queen is a community for podcast creators. And that is what we originally set out to do. So we have two affordable studio spaces. I'm in one in Somerset House and the other one is in Peckham, South London. And we originally began so that creators who wanted to get into audio and podcasting had an affordable and fully accessible space to do that. I guess over the years and just by virtue of what we do and gaining a reputation, other people have come and asked us to make podcasts. So we've become a production company and this is my eighth year in podcasting now. Wow. So my background was actually in audience development. And so I've also kind of garnered a reputation as being one of the UK's kind of leading podcast marketers. And so I've worked with a lot of companies and organizations on launching their shows and launching new seasons and reaching niche or I guess, targeted audiences. So Mm. I guess Content is Queen initially became a bit of an agency in that we could do production, we could do the marketing, we could do kind of the end to end. But at its core, it's a community. It's really about how do we help people enter audio and have kind of sustainable futures within audio. When I think of Content is Queen, I think of the International Women's Podcast Festival. So can you tell us about how that first started when you first launched it? And how long did the process take you to get it together? Yeah, so the international version of the podcast festival, Women's Podcast Festival, should I say, only launched last year in 2022. But before that, it was the Women's Podcast Festival for the UK. And that launched in 2018 when I was still at my last company, The Shoutout Network. And we, (laughs) the origin story is complex, but essentially we launched a podcast festival in 2017 where we brought over three huge African-American shows. And it was really actually a celebration of black British people in podcasting. We had like 16 plus live shows. It was huge. It was like 800 people there. And it was like the first podcast festival that really celebrated diversity in podcasting. Also, it was a tremendous success in every conceivable way, except financially for us. Mm. We lost so much money to the point where we might have had to declare bankruptcy for the company. It was a huge learning opportunity and a a huge moment (laughs) of uh, like reckoning for me. Mm -hmm. And we said, you know what, we're never going to do that again because it's just too risky for us. We were very new to event planning, festival making, everything like that. And so we went in very blindly and there were consequences for that. Having said that, we were really good at bringing people together. And so after that festival and kind of regrouping and having to re-strategize as the Shout Out Network, we thought about what was missing in terms of the podcast landscape in the UK at the time. And that's when the Women's Podcast Festival became a bit of a conversation. And so we kind of decided that we would be the place and the organizers of an event that would celebrate, mostly celebrate and showcase women in audio that already existed. Like it wasn't necessarily to like bring necessarily bring new people in. It was more about like, hey, who's shouting out the women that are doing really great things in audio and podcasting right now? And there wasn't really an an avenue for that. So we did that two years in a row as the Shout Out Network. And then I left that company and splintered off and created Content is Queen, which was what one of the names of the Women's Podcast Festival. From there, the launch of Content is Queen coincided with COVID. <laughs> so you couldn't have any Classic. events in COVID. <laughs> and when the time came or the opportunity came to bring it back, we were talking about just kind of keeping it UK actually initially. And then actually through our partners, uh, amazing partners at Pinterest, we were able to make it global. And so it became the International Women's Podcast Festival as of 2022, because we actually had so much interest from women from all over the world being like, is this coming back? How can I get involved? Can I do a panel? Can we send talent or can can our talent get involved in this? And this was coming from like the US. We had people from East Asia. We had folks in Colombia, Argentina. It kind of like grew and snowballed as soon as like we said, yeah, sure, we can have like a remote setup for these guys. So why not someone else? And yeah, before you know, we had a full Global Voices stage and it was truly incredible. And we're planning to do it again in 2024. How did you make sure that you didn't kind of repeat the same mistakes that you made the first time round? You know, how did you make sure there was sufficient amount of money for all the ambition that you wanted Mm -hmm. to include in this? It is a delicate dance. After that first festival, I enrolled onto an MBA. Wow. Because of that or just 
you just thought this was something you wanted to do anyway? I actually didn't want to do an MBA before that, but um, <laughs> I have like wild interest in anthropology and public health. So like my, <laughs> my interests were very divergent to this, but the MBA purely because I was trying to find ways of understanding how to run a business. At that point, Shoutout Network was making like zero pounds and zero pence. And we were kind of mm-hmm. producing all of these shows. We were getting critical acclaim. People were patting us on the back for our role in like diverse diversity in podcasting mm-hmm. and bringing new audiences in. We got a lot of love and adulation, but nothing really translated into pounds and pence in the bank. And so I was just like, I don't want to ever lose that much money again, I guess for transparency purposes. It was like 20 grand, which for a lot of businesses and brands is not a lot. But for us, we were making no money. I was working part-time in like a social media job. My partner's working part-time in a social media job. Like we borrowed money from friends and family. So to lose like mm. their money plus like all of our savings and like any, like I didn't even think I had savings. Like every, everything we had went into that company and went into that festival. So to lose it was like a huge, huge, huge blow. And I was like, I can't do that again. Like I, like I, my body I still have a trauma response thinking about that. So I'm just like, I cannot do that again. And what's the way that I can learn the fastest way to learn how to build a sustainable business? Like for me, an MBA, I know loads of people go into it for like big CEO jobs. I was like, no, I actually just need to learn like accounting. and business. (laughs) So I went into it strictly for knowledge and I got like a a complete like free ride for it. Like they they liked my background and what I was doing and thought I was a good candidate. So I got selected and I didn't have to pay the fees. And that was an added bonus. So it took me a little over a year and a half to complete it. And yeah, I I did learn the basis of business. And actually since running Content is Queen, we've been pretty much profitable ever since. So it did work. (laughs) (laughs) It did work. You mentioned that for one of the partners for or the partner for International Women's Podcast Festival is Pinterest. Mm-hmm. Did you work with any other partners for funding? Was that how you funded the festival? Yeah, we also worked with ACAST. So ACAST was our UK lead. Pinterest was our global lead. I must give a shout out to ACAST because they actually were the sponsors of our very first festival and have actually supported every festival since, except for this year, obviously. So ACOS have been a very consistent partner. Audible as well. Audible is a very consistent partner for us. Probably less on the festivals, but in other in other ways. But yeah, we were quite fortunate that ACOS kind of really believe in what we're doing in terms of getting women into the industry, but also celebrating. And they've got quite a good roster of women in their in their kind of talent wheelhouse. So we've been really fortunate with partners in the past. In the past, we've also had BBC Sounds when they first launched. In fact, I think it was the year that BBC Sounds launched. They kind of also came as as part of the festival. And who did we have in the following year? Global did our second women's festival in 2019, Global slash DAX at the time. So we've had really good partners. Um, Spotify's also been a headline sponsor in the past as well. Basically, all of them have been involved <laughs> in some shape or form and all of them have been really great. I guess what feels important to say or important to recognize is consistency is important for a festival like this or for an event like this. Like it literally cannot exist without that sponsorship, without that backing of the industry or backing of partners. Like we are a team of two full-time employees and, and some freelancers around us. And our team is really strong and mighty and we have big ambitions and big goals. But like, ultimately, <laughs> we can only do so much as a small team. We need the industry to kind of really say, yes, we believe that this thing should exist and this is how we're going to fund it. But yeah, all of them have been pretty great in their own ways. You posted earlier this year that the International Women's Podcast Festival is being postponed until 2024, I think. That's right. And that's because of lack of funding. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us just what, what happened there? And, and when did you kind of come to the realization that this needs to be postponed and we can't actually support it for this year? Yeah, yeah. that must have been a tough decision. It was a tough decision. The answer to this is kind of multi-layered. So I would say on... I knew from earlier this year, so we announced that it wasn't going to happen in May, but I think I knew from probably February that it was unlikely to happen, given the timelines that we'd need to make something happen in the first place and how the sponsorship conversations were going or not going. Um, Mm. (laughs) I knew really early on, I remained optimistic and hopeful that something would change. And I kind of, in my mind, set a deadline of May 
as like, if I haven't heard by the beginning of May from anyone, then it's just not going to happen. So I know how to run a very lean festival. So I was like, if we don't get all of the money we need, this is what we can do. This is like our plan C version. Here's our plan A, plan B, plan C. So we have like loads of contingencies in place. I would say the writings on the wall for funding though were from last year. Like I said, Pinterest was our global partner. Pinterest is actually a bit of an outlier because it's not an audio Mm. company. It's not been known to be in podcasting in that way. And ACAST was our second sponsor. And then I think very late in the day, Amazon Music and Wondery came on board quite close to the actual event date. So the writing was on the wall that there was already going to be like there was shifting in budgets and Mm. people were choosing to allocate their funding to other events and activations for that year. Like they explicitly told me they had given their budget to another event. Um, so I was like, huh, wow. that's interesting. That was the first time that event had ever run. This was our third festival that we were kind of seeking out for. So it was a bit of a blow to be like, oh, here's something with a track record that's much wanted and needed within the industry and widely supported by women in the industry and the allies. Why is that just not even just a line item that's just reserved at this point? Um, why have we not done enough? So that was kind of disappointing. So we knew that from last year, it was an uphill battle. And then this year, those conversations kind of went in a similar direction of, yeah, we just don't have the budget for this. We don't have it. And it's like, mm. huh, that's interesting. Because then I then went to the events that they did invest in and it was like watching burning money. So it was like, Oh my God, that must have been so frustrating. (laughs) Very, very frustrating. And definitely a bit of a slap in the face, especially because some of those same companies did invite me to that event. And at the same time, like a week before that had told me, yeah, sorry, we, sorry, we can help you out this time. And it's like, Mm. Oh no, but you've, you've definitely, you've definitely spent, (laughs) like you can see it. (laughs) It's on display, (laughs) but it was, it was disappointing and I can, I can feel how I feel about it. I know that loads of people are very angry on, on my behalf. I don't necessarily feel angry about it. I'm just disappointed that it couldn't happen this year, but I think 2024, given that we spoke out and given that other people have spoken out and said they wanted it, I think I'm optimistic that we have something very good planned and something very solid and that we'll probably pull something quite amazing off for 2024. I saw, you know, the response online seemed to be everyone was, as you say, on your behalf, so frustrated, so cross and really sort of felt quite rallying, Mm -hmm. which is always lovely to see. But I suppose how does that transfer to real life help and, you know, actual action? It feels very reassuring and very validating. Uh, I mean, I was, I had six weeks maternity leave for the last festival and then I was back for four weeks to do the festival and then I had a very leisurely summer with me and this newborn baby. (laughs) (laughs) I would, I would like to preface this, that I went into that festival being like, I am never doing this again. Like I was like freshly postpartum. So I was like, oh, I kind of manifested this not happening because I was just like, in another world last year. So I was like, "Mm, this is kind of a relief, but I also wasn't expecting the level of support that people had for it. And Mm. I think it's also coming off the back of other events not happening. So She Podcast Live, they had to postpone and cancel for similar reasons, a lack of funding and things not quite lining up the way they wanted to. And earlier that year, and something that made me very viscerally angry was that the Africa Podfest had to cancel um, and they're in February and they had to cancel, I think, a few weeks before because they just couldn't get the funding that they needed to pull off their festival. And that was like so enraging to me, but it was also like, okay, if they can go through the motions and be open about the fact that like they can't make it work Mm. and these are the reasons why in many ways it was it was sad and angering but it was empowering for me to also make like really make a judgment call because I was like okay I was gonna white knuckle through and just push through and just make it work but we probably would have been in a similar position to what I was in with my first festival which is really spending money we don't have to make something happen and it probably not work out because it would be a, a, a step down from what we were able to do last year. Making a decision to pull the plug was hard, but the support has been good. And I feel like if we do do another one, the support that people have said they're going to that they're going to give, I think it will come through because they know how mm-hmm. the, the stakes are so high when it doesn't exist. Yeah. 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 
I attended your session at the podcast show this year mm-hmm. um, and you were talking about the postponing the International Women's Podcast Festival as well as the Equality and Audio Act. And it was just a, it was a very emotional session. I think everyone in that room understood what you were going through and they really related to it. And it was very great to see this session happen at the podcast show, first of all, where everyone was kind of like talking about, you know, the successful podcast they've launched and whatnot. And then this was something that was very important. Mm-hmm. First of all, how was it like you know, standing in front of that room and and being able to speak about this and what was the response after? Yeah, that was hard, honestly. I mm. When I tell you I did not want to be there, <laughs> oh. I did not want to be in that, like I did not want to be there. It was a hard week. Like if we put this into context, so like the podcast show was the 24th, 25th of May, mm-hmm. a week before, like the Thursday before we had just announced that the Women's Festival wasn't going to happen. I had let all of the partners that we had reached out to know that. And then they were like, oh my God, we're so sorry, this isn't happening. I'm like, really? (laughs) Okay, Um, I'm glad you're sorry. Um, I don't know what to do with this. But yeah, so Mm. I was like off the back of like some of them just being like completely obtuse about the fact that it wasn't Mm. happening. Yeah, like it was a week later. And then the Thursday at the podcast show. So our talk was the Wednesday. The Thursday was the anniversary of George Floyd's killing. And so like... The whole week (laughs) was fraught with emotion because Mm -hmm. I am a visibly black woman. I have been activated and galvanized. I I start, my podcast journey started off the back of Mike Brown's killing in Ferguson and the Ferguson uprising. That's literally how I entered this industry is off the back of activism. And then I'm like having to relive Another trauma response because George Floyd was the first time I went onto the streets and protested. Like my activism has always been like, what can I do on social media? How can I write about this? How can I talk about this in other ways? I've never taken to the streets. So this is the first time like this, this killing meant a lot. And so to go into that venue (laughs) to then kind of be face to face with the people that have told me that what we're doing in, in, I guess like I'm strongly paraphrasing because that's not what they've said. But like essentially Mm. what they're doing with their actions is telling me what you're doing doesn't matter. It's not important. It just felt like a layering of trauma and pain. (laughs) Um, And it's always emotional to talk about it because I can remember what it felt like to have to stand there and be like, I am angry. I'm livid that this thing's not happening. I'm livid on behalf of the people that won't get the opportunities because this isn't happening. Because people get commissioned off the back of of the International Women's Podcast Festival and the Women's Festival. Like that is literally where connections and collaborations happen for a lot of women and a lot of people who have no other access. So I'm like, oh, okay, this is really disappointing. And then you're kind of in a room where you're a minority on the Thursday and walking in and people are, you know, just like having a nice time. And I'm like, Three years ago on this day, one of the most brutal murders like at the, the world has seen to the point where the world was galvanized and horrified, mm. like actions were stirred and promises were made. Like, and we're all just kind of laughing and having fun and not even acknowledging that this was a pivotal moment, not only for black people, but like the world and our, also our industry, because a lot of those companies made big pledges. Right. So yeah. it was it was really difficult. I did not want to be there. Um, and then, you know, we're talking about the Equality and Audio Pact on that same day, which was born off the back of that killing. Renee Richardson set it up as a response in response to what was happening at the time in 2020. And then, you know, the you can pay results come out and it's like, basically, if you're a white man, you're winning at life in every conceivable way. If you're a woman that's gaining more experience, more skill, you're earning less than you've ever earned before. And then if you're a person of color, like you were actually earning more three years ago than you are today. Like it was just like a, a cacophony of nonsense. So it was, it was very difficult to go there, be there. And yeah, I did, I, <laughs> I did get emotional and I did want that edited out of the video that was subsequently posted, but it's fine. Like I was angry. It showed I was upset and it showed. And I think the reality is it's a lived experience. Like I'm, I've been in this industry eight, nine years and I'm still probably nowhere near as well paid as some of my white male counterparts who have been in it shorter or just as long as me. I've sat on stages with largely white men who have been in the industry maybe as long as I have or even shorter and I'm still the lowest paid person in the room um, mm. and often on the stage. Like it's, it's a very frustrating place to be. But I've been in this nine years. I have a degree, an MBA, and like, it's like, what more do I have to do to prove that I'm of value and like the work that we're doing is of value and of use? And so it's, it, it feels like a very 
frustrating place and that all very <laughs> very much bubbled up on the stage at the podcast show um which you would have experienced and I mean lo- lo- loads of people came up to me afterwards and was just like thank you for saying it and saying it in that mm. way and I guess as embarrassed as I feel a little bit about the emotional outburst because I'm quite logical and steady I guess it just needed to come out that way for it to translate and actually to in many ways rally the support that it did do you think there are other ways, you know, if, if you are a production company or you have some sway in the industry, but you perhaps are yourselves underfunded, what are the ways that companies can help amplify voices that don't normally get to be heard without necessarily the funding? It's a good question. because, And it's one that I think is important to ask simply because it's not a thought that is at the forefront of many people's minds. I, I mm. feel like I don't have the privilege to not think about it. Mm. So it's always there. I don't necessarily believe that you need funding to always amplify voices. Shout Out Network never had funding and we made like nine amazing shows that did really well in the press and got audiences. Like we know that it doesn't cost a lot to make a podcast, um, like in comparison to other forms of media. So when it comes to amplifying voices or even just giving opportunities to people from backgrounds that are not the same as your own. It is really just about like opening the door to access, whether that be your physical time, just like explaining if you're a production company, hey, this is how commissioning works. This is how contracts work. This is literally if you wanted to make a show, you could go through us and this is what our contract looks like. Uh, and just being really transparent about the process or making shows with those people um, and see and actually actively looking for talent that would do well on those shows. It's one of the pledges of the Equality and Audio Pact, which is to hire people based on like their skill and not just their identity. And thinking about like if someone's done a really good job on like, I don't know, 50 years hip hop anniversary, like chances are they're probably going to do a really good job on like poker 50 years. Like, do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, a retrospective yeah. is a retrospective. It's going to follow a similar format and style. So thinking a bit more holistically, like the person in front of you is a whole individual with interests that go beyond their racial identity. Like I'm not thinking about my black every day like I just I'm just not uh, I'm not thinking about my womanhood every day it's just a part of who I am it's so I guess treat people as an individual and as a person allow them to kind of have opportunities but also give them grace like I I must add that stuff that massive asterisk which is give people the grace that you would give to anyone else which is allow them to make mistakes and mess up too because yeah. that's how they'll learn and chances are you'll give that grace to someone else with a similar background to you because you'll understand it because it will feel familiar to you. Whereas Mm. you might not feel that way. You might be like, ah, all all of the people I hire who happen to be people of colour just don't seem to get this one thing. It's like, well, maybe just teach them that one thing, (laughs) you know? So giving grace is important. What are some of the next steps for the Equality and Audio Pact and how do people support it? So the website is equalityinaudio.com. And we are basically in the throes of um, enrolling our regional leads. So Laura Blake, who runs UCAN or UK Audio Network, if you don't know, have taken on kind of co-leading this next phase, phase two of the Equality and Audio Pact. And ultimately what that means is we're trying to take those pledges and make them into actions that we can measure. And it's the we can measure part that's really important. At the moment, I think around 450 companies signed up to the Equality and Audio Patch, thanks to the hard work that was done by Renee and the Broccoli Productions team when they launched it. And people are still signing up nearly every week. We get new signups for it and people are inquiring about it. So it's great that there's interest and a desire to kind of commit to those pledges. However, there is no current methodology or process to measure whether people are actually doing those things. In fact, we've seen that some companies on there are not doing some of those actions, be it appearing on panels that are not representative of the cities that they're in. And so what we've done is in the background, we have basically created what these actions are. And what we're doing is now meeting with the currently enrolled regional leads. So we've got Latin America, Africa. We're doing UK and Europe for now. And we're now currently recruiting East Asia, South Asia and Australia are kind of our missing three, our Mm -hmm. magic three. (laughs) (laughs) And we've got North America signed up as well. So we've got four countries or regions covered. And the idea is that we'll have like the five main actions that 
take the pledges from pledge to action. And then we'll then look at how we can kind of monitor and certify that those companies are doing what they say they're doing um, and making it easy for them to, because we know that some of the companies that have signed up are like one man bands or two man bands. Mm. And so we know like realistically you're hiring freelancers. So what does that mean in, in the grand scheme of hiring a team versus like a big company like a Spotify or an Amazon or whoever or global? What does that mean for them? And making sure that it feels fair when we're doing this monitoring. So it is really about like, can we make sure that you guys are one, a safe place to work? Well, if you're signed up to the pact and we're saying you're an equality in audio pact member, what does that mean? Are you a safe place to work and how do we prove it? And mm. are you willing to go through the process of proving it? And do you call out these companies if they've said that they are one thing and actually in action are not? I think there's an ongoing discussion between us about how we do that. I believe in calling in, actually. So I believe that we should recognize good and bad. And mm-hmm. that shouldn't necessarily mean visceral hate or like pitchforks and everything coming out for people. I think if someone or an organization is not kind of living up to the standards, there should be some level of like showing them that and also saying to the community, hey, they haven't lived up to the standards. Here's how and this is what we've recommended. And then it's on them to kind of resolve that issue. We don't know how that's going to pan out, like whether that would be like a list or it's just a newsletter to say these people have joined and these people have left and let, let people's imaginations <laughs> take them I mean, so I guess it's like putting them on probation almost, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I know that we've got really big ambitions for what that will look like three or four years down the line, but at the moment we're a voluntary team kind mm. of pulling this together and trying to kind of make sure that it feels regionally relevant as well, like the team in Africa and the team in Latin, like they've got very different bones to pick, like from like just wage equity, like (laughs) that's their problem. Like they need to fix wage equity. How do we do that? And we've got like bigger fish to fry. Like, Hey, are people just being representative across the content landscape? (laughs) No. (laughs) So yeah, there's lots, lots to think about, but I definitely, I would love an F list personally. Like you failed. Like (laughs) I would do it, but that's probably not going to happen. Not quite like that. Turning words into actions, that was like the big theme of the open letter that you sent out to the podcasting community, say less, do more. Mm -hmm. And I think actually about like calling them out, I feel like you did call out companies in such a great way with that open letter without having to necessarily name them one by one. It was really kind of like, this is what's happening, this is the situation and and like you're not actually doing as much as you say that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really great. How has the response for that been like? And have you had any of these companies kind of reach out and say, we're actually going to try and do more based on this? Or how do we do more? Oh, gosh, the open letter. I forgot that also coincided with that talk (laughs) as well. It literally was out the same day, wasn't it? It's been a really good response, not only from just like the creator side of the community who are just like, yes, snap, snaps, we agree. That's been really nice and very validating because I definitely thought it would fall onto crickets. Companies have reached <laughs> out for sure, especially because everything coincided with the Equality and Audio Pact phase two launch. So we've had meetings pretty much with the big five at this point, or the, we've had maybe meetings with four of the big fives for the UK who are like, what can we do? How can we support this? How can we move forward? What are the initiatives that we're kind of wanting to see happen and how can we fund that? They're ongoing conversations. I mean, I've been in this a long time and I've been doing partnerships for a long time. So I know that every conversation is like not an immediate solution. And I'm driven by impact over just like, don't just throw money at the problem. Let's actually see like, how can we use that money to then lead to long-term sustainable not only growth for the equality and audio pact, but also growth for the industry and for people in the industry where we're not seeing talent just like consider careers in finance because it will be equally as traumatizing, but better paid, you know? So like we, we're trying to think about how like they're, they're thinking about it and we're thinking about it as a collective, like what do we need to see and what are going to be the barriers for them to enact some of these actions that we're asking for. I think the open letter, I guess similar to the speech, like if you weren't in the room when it happened, the open letter was basically a similarly emotional outpouring, but it had the Mm. backing of so many people, important people in the industry as well, who felt the same way. And it 
it, I think companies are kind of just reflecting on, on their actions. But that was like, it all came out at the three year mark and the three anniversary. So I think mm. a lot of them are thinking twice when they say diversity now, especially in the UK, like, because they know that Equality in Audio is kind of relaunching and they know that there's a bit more eyeballs on them and there's a bit more, people are thinking about it a bit more. So they, I think they're a bit more weary and I hope that doesn't turn into inaction. But I'm also of the thinking that say less and do more. Like, don't say anything unless you're going to back that up. Like, just say nothing. It's better for us to know that you don't want to do anything than for you to say you're going to do something and then absolutely fail at executing on it. I'm optimistic about the companies we've spoken to doing really good things in relation to equality in audio and in relation to the open letter, which is calling for equality in audio in every conceivable way. You mentioned the importance of consistency as well. Do you think it's better for them to be having these like baby steps but staying consistent for a long time about diversity and like working towards becoming more inclusive than, you know, just doing one big initiative? Oh, for sure. I, as much as I would love to just see like a big, let's just throw some money at all of the diverse creators. I would love that because, hey, diverse creator here needs money. <laughs> would love that. Um, no, but the reality is like our guiding principle at Content is Queen is inclusion is a process, not an outcome. And your participation is essential. Like it is a process. Like I am not a perfect DE&I person. I'm like, our company is not perfect. And I'm saying that as someone that's on the front lines and could be called out at any moment, just like any of these other organizations, we have to just go through the motions. So someone is going to be missing from the room, but someone also needs to recognize that someone's missing from the room. If you have to be kind of called in and be like, hey, you didn't have any South Asian representation there. Why? You didn't have any disabled representation. Why? Having someone do that for these companies, the truth is they're just not that diverse inside. Mm. And so someone is always missing and we know someone's always going to be missing. We can't. It's almost impossible to represent everyone at every level at all of the times. But it is just being quite cognizant that it's a process. And so you can introduce processes and people and systems that kind of then remind you, oh, okay, we've, we're putting on this big initiative. I'm just asking that question, like, who's not here? And so, yeah, I think it's more important that there are baby steps and they do it right and sustainably in the first instance before they launch into, we're going to do a big, massive super fund and it's going to support this ecosystem. And it's just like those goals feel lofty and vague. And actually, will it result in tangible help for people that really need to enter the industry? And the reality is we need the, the producers and the behind the scenes part of the audio industry to be just as representative and as, as inclusive as who's in front of those mics and on the cover of artwork and who's popping up on the billboards. That stuff's important and it helps, but we need, we need to see it back here too. And that includes decision-making. Do you find that with women specifically that they tend to get pigeonholed into, you know, certain genres, kind of like true crime or sex and relationships? I probably would have said yes to that when we first did the festival, like in 2018, 2019. I think some of that still happens, but I actually think women's representation in podcasting has Im improved dramatically. Mm. The issue isn't their representation. The issue is amplification of those stories and those podcasts. Um, and the same is true when you get into the intersections of race, gender and ability and neurodiversity. So yeah, I think there's some amazing, really well-made women's sports podcasts, women's true crime, definitely sex and relationships, women even in like on the cusp of comedy and actually in comedy, like I think they're really strong. I do believe they are pigeonholed and I think there are some stats to back this up. I actually read the stats that back that up that men just don't listen to women. They don't listen to women's podcasts. Like genuinely go and ask like your male friends to list like their top three or four podcasts and see how many women are like either leading those podcasts or even just like maybe a co-host. You might get like the occasional British scandal where Alice Levine is like a co-host or like my dad wrote a porno. But for the most part, men don't actually really listen to women's podcasts. Mm. I was having a little explore of the Content is Queen website earlier and, you know, there are so many interesting, different, unusual things that I picked up from it. But can you tell us specifically about your membership? Because I noticed that, you you know, you have tiers and the first tier is free. Yeah. And it's a very generous tier. So <laughs> tell us about that. I guess the, the ultimate goal for us is to support creators irrespective of their backgrounds. I guess we focus and target 
people from underrepresented backgrounds or non-traditional backgrounds. But mm-hmm. our goal when we set up Content is Queen was very much to help people enter podcasting. Like I entered podcasting with a network or we built a network around the podcasting I was doing. And I just wanted other people to have a similar level of access to me, which was I had a production team. I had someone that would edit the podcast. Like my only job was to focus on making the best content possible. And when you have some freedom to just focus on what you think is a good idea and your like big idea, uh, and not worry about all of the other things that come with it, things really start to fly. Like I noticed immediately how easy it was to just get on with promoting and sharing the podcast because I was putting my best work into it. And so the membership is really designed for that purpose. It's just to bring about like a sense of community that you're not in this alone. You've got like a network of people mm. with every member when they sign up, if they've got an active and ongoing podcast, they can let us know if they're even on the free tier or the pay tiers, like they let us know that they've got something coming up and we, we spotlight it. We'll put it in our newsletter. We amplify their stories because we know how difficult it is to be showcased literally anywhere unless you're from one of the big big companies Mm, that's mm -hmm. almost paying to be there really and it also takes a long time to build those relationships as an individual podcaster and to be honest the likes the the curators of the apple podcast page and the pocket cast page and like they don't have time to meet with every single individual uh, creator then they're usually one person so it helps to have like a community or like a, a a big face behind And we can say, hey, this is what's coming up and we can kind of help them help curators Mm. on the other side be like, Mm -hmm. hey, this is this is the emerging and independent sector. Here's what's coming up. Like, have a look. The free tier is really just designed for people that are kind of thinking about entering or they have an idea, but they're still kind of struggling with where to go. There are some basic free resources that we provide. We often do lots of free events. It's also how people can fastest find out about our micro grants for podcasters program where we give out literally grant funding for them to build their ideas yeah which is brilliant yeah Yeah. and then for the kind of paid memberships that this is like where people are just wanting more advice so you know they want us to either listen to what they're making and add comments or feedback they might just want promotional support so can you send this to apple for me i don't necessarily need you to pay me to do that but it helps like to be more informed of like, we're just more informed of what's going on in their world. Um, Mm. and we can make recommendations. We don't just make shows for ourselves and this is not just opportunities that we want to keep to ourselves. We're trying to eliminate gatekeeping in the industry. So the memberships are designed to kind of help people get access. It helps support what we do with the festival, with keeping the studios affordable and accessible. And then we've got production support. So we make production like so affordable for creators with good ideas just so that they have the opportunity to make something really high quality and then eventually keep and maintain a sustainable production process sustainable show and from a sustainable show you can usually start to monetize and and get more opportunities off the back of it and we've seen shows really grow and they kind of come with us they, they literally go on the journey with us and it's been really really lovely to watch over the last three years like our membership just keeps growing and growing and so we've got really exciting plans on how we can better support the whole podcast ecosystem within the creator side, but also from the side of advertisers and commissioners who are also looking for this talent that they say they can't find. Like we know where they are. <laughs> like they're right here. Like we see them, yeah. we meet them, we interact with them, we help them improve. And so, yeah, there's no excuse for the industry to be like, we don't know what's going on. There's no diverse <laughs> candidates or, you know, those usual excuses that they make. Yeah. <laughs> If you think back to all the content that Content is Queen has helped produce over the past few years, mm-hmm. what really stands out for you? You know, what are some of your highlights? Oh, that is such a hard question. <laughs> hard. I'm really putting you on the spot here. I mean, generally speaking, the micro grant program is as a project, like just super rewarding to do because there's not that one, there's just not that many funding opportunities for creators. There's just like shockingly little out there. And ones that are completely devoid of like trying to take your IP or make like mold you into something else. Mm. Like ours is like just strings free. Like here's the money, like go make the thing. And if it doesn't work out, cool. Like that's fine. You took a risk. It's great. You also provide production support we do, as yeah. well as the funding, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, we we literally try to help make the thing come to life. Highlight project. We've got Bin Juice, which is an audio drama that won the 2022 micro grant program. And they just finished wrapping up their pilot in the Audible studios. Watching Bin Juice from start to finish has been really cool just because mm. the progress 
from having our initial conversations with Emma when she was shortlisted and we weren't sure we were just like can we do a drama like it's just not enough money to make this happen to seeing her like come up with a treatment and a and a pilot and a full script and then she's brought on like this incredible cast like at, like full-blown actors like who are on tv um and influencers who are just like actually like known to loads of people we're just like how you've just done this and that is insane for her to be in the audible studios which is incredible that's been really really lovely to watch like and chris is another winner who's working on a story called The Redemption Man, which is just a story about a man in West London who used to carry this massive cross on his shoulder. And he just remembers him growing up and he's basically just like gone on this journey of like not only reliving his own childhood, but like finding people connected to this man who never spoke and uncovering and unfolding his story. And we've literally been on this journey with him as he's finding things out. And that's just like, none of these stories have come out into the world yet, but it's just like going through it and just seeing what difference that funding has made and to like how confidently they then go on to tell these stories and like execute on it is just remarkable. And then there's definitely more, but Talia Augustidis, she is working on a story that's very, very, very personal to her. And that's just been picked up to be broadcast on the BBC, I think in October or November. Amazing. And it's just like, this is fantastic. Like, this is exactly what this grant was there for, is yeah. to kind of like give people the confidence to tell the story that's in their hearts and minds. And so, yeah, this year has definitely been like a big highlight. And then other highlights have just been like the very first festival. There was a girl who did um, a podcast on sexual assault and it got Carrie Lloyd picked up on it actually she met Carrie at the festival um, mm-hmm. they got to talking Carrie introduced her to a production company and then it got picked up for the BBC and she then did like a dazed interview and I actually just stumbled upon it like I didn't even know this happened um, I stumbled upon it and she was like I am so grateful to the Women's Podcast Festival because that's how I got this show made yeah. like, I got to speak to Carrie because she was a survivor of sexual assault and she wanted to do a podcast about that and yeah it became a BBC commissioned project and it's just like this is cool like clearly this stuff matters (laughs) and so yeah it's really nice. It sounds incredibly rewarding. Very, very. Imriel, thank you so much for talking to us. I've loved listening to you talk. It's been one of my favourite interviews. So thank you. I really appreciate it. And for being so honest and open about the failures alongside the successes. I feel like that's incredibly valuable and actually quite rare. So thank you. Thank you. I think that was a particularly emotional episode. I think I was moved to tears on like more than one occasion during that because Imriel is clearly so impassioned about the work that she and Content is Queen is doing. Reem, I know for you, this was a big one. You were really excited about talking to Imriel. So what did you take away? You know, I know that we spoke a little bit about ideas that you might want to implement yourself going forward. I agree with you. It was an emotional episode and I think I really appreciated her honesty as well. And everything she'd say, she'd say with a smile on, like she was still you know, so engaging and positive, despite some of the stuff that she was talking about being very, very frustrating. Mm. What I took away from that is that after she posted the open letter and after she talked about the Equality and Audio Act at the podcast show, that she said that some companies have reached out to her. And I think it just shows how important it is to go forward and ask questions and, and work collaboratively with someone who is trying to raise diversity and inclusivity in the industry instead of doing something on your own. Consistency is the key here. Having just a one-off project isn't the way to go. Yeah, I think that was really important, actually. And Adam, I know you were like listening in and we're getting kind of swept up in it as much as we were. So for you, what are you hoping to kind of take forward yourself in podcasting off the back of this chat with Imriel? So for me, the biggest surprise was just how much of her own money and you know her friends and family's money she put into the first iteration of the Women's Podcast Festival. I think there is sometimes a bit of a disconnect between the the people who run community-driven events like that and the sort of big commercial businesses in podcasting, because the reality is until those companies see a pretty guaranteed return on investment 
from participating in those kinds of events, they're never going to be a reliable backer. You can't count on commercial companies to follow through with the pledge if that pledge isn't highly likely to make them a return on the back end. At the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, these companies have to make decisions based on the bottom line. That's just the way they operate. Something that I'm personally very keen to do more of is to create resources and guides for particularly independent podcasters or those that are maybe less experienced with the business side of things to try and sort of gain a greater understanding of how these organizations work and what the best ways are to approach them and what kind of stuff they're looking for. The way these companies work is they have different pots of money set aside for different things. There will be a specific pot of budget that goes towards things like events-based marketing. So sponsoring events like you know the International Women's Podcast Festival, podcast movements, the London Podcast Show, all of that kind of stuff will come out of you know, usually a certain pot of money and any charitable donations or, you know, charitable funding, support, stuff like that, grants will be part of a separate kind of budget line. And if you want to reach those pots of money, there are different teams and different people within those organizations that you need to be speaking to. And also you probably need to pitch them a different way. Those teams will have different criteria that they're looking for in terms of which events they they assign their their budget to. Well, that sounds brilliant. We'll we'll keep an eye on PodPod for these resources. That would be really helpful, I think. We've talked about so much. Imriel was a brilliant guest. And again, just want to say how much I appreciated her honesty, especially in terms of, as you say, the finances, because that is something I feel like we get very little transparency about in most industries, not just podcasting. But it is really useful to get some actual figures in terms of people who might be thinking about doing a similar sort of thing. So thank you to Imriel Morgan and Content is Queen. Thank you, of course, to you, Adam and Reem, for joining me this week. The podcast is produced by Emma Corsham for Haymarket Business Media. And as I said, do sign up to our daily email bulletins and do rate and subscribe as well, because you never know, you might miss something really, really important. I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon, and I'll see you next week for the run-up to the British Podcast Awards. We'll be talking to Stephen Bailey and Zoe Lyons, the hosts of the show, and uh, hear what they've got planned for the event. See you then. 